With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, happy, uh, I don't even know, what, what, what are we happy about this week? Uh, happy football depth chart release day. Yes, happy football depth chart release day. Definitely the thing that we're all most concerned about based on the last uh, 20, 24 hours, actually like 24 hours and five minutes. Yeah, give or take. Um, we'll talk From about the time of this recording, Yeah, clearly. We'll talk about that in the second half of the recording, but uh, in the first half, we're going to talk a little bit of basketball. Unfortunately, Dan, I made the smart decision of uh, running for most of the game, um, checking in here and there, uh, but I kind of knew full well what was going to go on. Uh, you, on the other hand, decided to uh, do do something else. Yeah, I, I watched our team play, Nonsense. Which, show, which, which turned out to be a uh, questionable venture on my part. Um, I was very excited. Uh, those those of you who are in the New York City area uh, and are cable cutters will know that it's been very difficult to fight, to see every game that these Syracuse Orange have played uh, because a lot of them that are ACC Network games uh, get shoved onto uh, New York. Uh, it's like Channel Fifty Five, and um, a lot of bars can't find that for whatever reason and uh i can't get it uh because that channel is over the air but hosted in like northern westchester county so um yeah last night it was on yes network which i can get through uh through the uh fox sports app which is nice uh so i was i was home i was ready to watch our game we had delayed the podcast till today because that's usually when we record nine o'clock tip which is kind of weird but whatever um and yeah we uh we didn't show up we uh well three guys showed up uh, the normal three uh, we had no help else otherwise. We shot 38% from the field. Um, we gave up uh, 14 of 27 from three. Um, did we actually get... No, we bet, we rebounded them slightly, but it didn't feel like it. They moved the ball uh, like a team that should be able to drop 85 on one of the better defenses in the country um, after we beat them pretty handily last time. And, and uh, yeah, I was really disappointed. That was Boston College for those who uh, are not caught up on the ongoing Syracuse plight. Um, yeah, so very disappointing. Uh, I know BC isn't as bad as they have been, and, and to be honest, like, they have one fewer win and the same time record as us and split games with us. So BC is clearly, like, a lot better than they have been. That being said, this is a game that they really need, that we really needed um, if we wanted a chance to reasonably contend for an at-large bid in the tournament. Now, I think if we beat Clemson on Saturday... Um, 
and you know make a run to like the ACC semifinal. Maybe we can still get there, but um, it's it's really closing in on us here. Yeah, I mean, I, I never necessarily ruled out the loss to BC. I know when I was writing kind of some of those articles uh, earlier in the week and on Monday, I had mentioned like Syracuse that they won four straight. That sounded like a pretty good deal. I mean, BC isn't isn't nearly as bad as they've been in recent years. Uh, I think their RPI is actually about top 60 to 70 or so. So, like, far from a terrible team. Have some, plenty of, uh, you know, quality wins. They've they've dropped some, a good deal of games, and that's why they, you know, kind of sit there at the same record we do in conference at 7-9. Um, but overall, you know, 17 and 13, not necessarily. Um, just overall quality. Um, isn't exactly what SU has um, from a numbers perspective, from a quality of wins perspective. Um, there is just something to be desired for them, and and that's fine. They're really out of the, the tournament conversation, um, which, hey, it happens. I, I think for them, and I tried to explain this to you know some of the folks in the community um, on Monday and Tuesday. Like, you know, while we I, I think are still a better team than, than BC, I think BC just has a kind of uh, matchup advantage. Um, at a neutral road site for us. Um, they're a great three-point shooting team. Uh, these things kind of happen. Um, I noticed ESPN had kind of something about, um, you know, they're, uh, they have like the tournament ramifications and how BPI, their, uh, their basketball power index, rated us um, as whether or not we could get in. It seemed like... Um, you know, SU had a 57% chance to make the NCAA tournament if they won last night um, and a 17% chance to make the tournament if they lost. Um, that's not great for us. Obviously, we lost. That knocks it down to 17% according to ESPN. We can pick up some ground, um, obviously, by beating Clemson. But um, like you said, I think semifinals is probably where we're at. We're probably going to finish with an 11 or a 12 seed uh, in the ACC, which is bad uh, by most measures I'm kind of seeing us as a probably a 12 probably means we're playing early um, I I don't like having to face Georgia Tech or Wake Forest um, early I much would rather much would much rather face Pitt um, but yeah I, I I think that if you face if you face Wake Forest and Georgia Tech, I guess the one counter is that you maybe only need to win two games depending on who it's against. So, I don't know. Um, I think Syracuse could potentially get in if, if their win combination is like Wake Forest, Miami, and then obviously the Clemson game um, to end the season. But... I don't know, Dan. Do you think that there's a that that they pretty much have to get in um, those three ACC tournament wins now? I'm starting to feel that way, especially if it depends on how it lines up. Because um, I think Syracuse almost has to hope that it gets a tough draw in the ACC tournament. Because I think picking up a big time win would uh, really help. Where if we just beat, like you said, if we beat Wake, Miami, and someone else, we've already like you know won, won an incident. I don't have like the current layout of what we would face based on today in front of me. But if it's just like getting a couple more wins against good, not great teams, I think we have, we probably have to run like the semifinal. Um, I think now if we, if we sneak in and get a matchup against like a Duke or a UNC or one of, you know, or Virginia, 
Um, maybe you can then say, oh, you know, they only won two or three more games, but uh, you they, they got this huge win against this highly ranked team at the end um, in their last one of the season. Maybe, you know, that would bolster it more. So I think you can probably see it both ways for, like, getting the easiest possible run and just compiling wins versus getting a big win. But I do think, like, that signature really highly ranked win is something that's really missing from this this resume. And um, that could be a thing that we could uh, find ourselves, you know, we, we couldn't be in a position to get it based on all of the strong teams in the ACC. So um, I, 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 it's hard to just say, like, we need exactly this without seeing the field that we're going to face. But uh, either way, there's a lot of work to do, whether it's beating one huge team and, and getting another one or two on the road or picking up like three or four wins, no matter who it is. Yeah, I mean, obviously everything kind of hinges on, you know, we had said earlier, like before the BC game, that if you beat BC and you beat Clemson, you're in really good shape um, to not only get seeded well and maybe automatically face a team like Virginia Tech or Miami where you pick up that win you're in, or if you're if you're playing on Tuesday anyway, um, you know, hopefully beating a team like Pitt and then going in with some momentum and facing a team uh, you know, again, like Louisville, Virginia Tech, or Miami teams, we've uh, we've beaten all of them. Um, things are further complicated, obviously, now by the loss to BC. The fact that BC can potentially jump us. Notre Dame has beaten us already and now has um, Monty Colson back, just as we predicted would happen after we, you know, dropped that game earlier in the season. Uh, Notre Dame is now 8-9 conference. Florida State, who beat us as well, is 8-9 in conference. Uh, Louisville is currently beating Virginia um, at halftime, which uh, which would throw this whole thing you know further for a loop. We're just in a really weird spot right now. Um, I think if the season ended today, I think we'd still have the advantage over BC, uh, just because right now we have the same record. So right now we would let's see we we are eleventh in the conference, so we would face. Uh, Wake Forest, assuming we would beat Wake, um, which no guarantees there. Uh, we would face the sixth place team, which at current is Miami. Yeah, current is Miami. Um, I I don't necessarily think we're we're a lock to beat them again, but I do think that the matchup kind of favors us. But again, it all depends on exhaustion and all that. You know, like I've said in, in a lot of these articles, the back to back nights. Um, won't really do this Syracuse team any favors, uh, no matter how talented or not they are. Um, eventually, you play three guys 40 minutes a night every night. Um, you're going to be exhausted, and you're really going to be tired out, and talent stops being the main uh, differentiator, um, as we would see pretty quickly. And as we've seen, you know, kind of, I think we saw last night, I think we've seen several times before, you know, against a depleted Notre Dame team, we saw this. Um against the Florida State team that we honestly should have beaten, against the NC State team that we should have beaten. You know, talent stops being a factor when exhaustion kind of uh, kind of becomes a, a prevailing narrative. But I think with the Clemson win in hand, potentially, that would put us in a little bit better shape because we do have, um, that would give us a top 20 or so win. But from there, yeah, I, I think if we can get a Clemson win and... A win over probably Miami is really your best bet um, in terms of RPI. I think they uh, they definitely have um, the best numbers um, in terms of that kind of triumvirate of you know Miami, Virginia Tech, Louisville. But 
I, at this point, I, I think you just kind of have to play who you face, whoever's on the schedule, um, and, and then uh, then hope that the, the quality of wins can keep kind of rising. Because um, SU's computer numbers, as we've discussed before, aren't really too bad at all. I mean, they're still top 50 RPI. To make the schedule's nice. It, it really... Just, just keep winning, and, and the opponents will present themselves for us. Yep, that, that is the one benefit of the uh, being in the ACC and, and you know, back, back in the day being in the Big East. Like, you are never going to uh, run out of big games if you can keep on winning them in your conference tournament. Now, that being said, it'd be nice to win one in the conference tournament. Um, yes, which please. we Let's still have yet to do. Uh, hopefully Wake Forest or whomever gives us that opportunity. Although, like you said, like even Wake, who has not been a very good team this year, um, they are no walkover um, at all. Uh, so it, this ACC, like there have been years where the ACC has a very weak bottom, and that really, aside from Pitt, like th- that's really not the case this year. The bottom, I mean, we're in the bottom five of the ACC, but like the bottom five of the ACC are pretty decent overall compared to like what you usually see from the bottom of a, of a really big power five conference. So it, it's not going to be easy. Any no power five conference, you know, all these people earlier in the year that was claiming that, that the sec was better than the ACC, that the big 12 was better than the ACC. Like, you know what, right now, like l- look around those conferences and, and it, it really isn't, isn't a debate. Um, even with, you know, I, I know that the, the, Popular narrative this year has been, oh, the Big East is better than than it ever was when all those other teams were in it. The Big East is better than um, the ACC. You, you can do whatever whatever numerical gymnastics you need to do. Um, I, I would take the, the the top ten in the ACC over the top ten in the Big East or any other league any day. Yeah, I th- I'd say top to bottom, the only one that has the the total depth is probably the Big Twelve because I don't think there's like a a truly terrible team in the Big 12 right now, but overall... Also might not be a truly great team in that conference either, though. That's true. I mean, Kansas is going to probably be a one or two... I mean, they're almost definitely going to be a one or two seed no matter what. I don't think this is a very good Kansas team on the, like, in terms of what Kansas usually is. Um, But I think you're right. I I don't think there's a great uh, Big 12 team. I don't think any of the Big 12 teams are as good as Virginia and probably not Duke if they are kind of rolling on the, you know, on all firing all cylinders now with badly back and, you know, some idea of how to play defense, which, uh, you know, again, you're welcome, Duke. <laughs> um, uh, and even like UNC, who seems to be hitting their stride at the right time, um, I'd probably put them in a similar tier as Kansas. So, yeah, I, I'd say the ACC does feel like the strongest conference again, and that's not like a ton of bias. I think the Big East is very good. Um but outside of Villanova and Xavier, and, and Xavier is still, Xavier almost feels to me like Villanova, like before they won that title a couple of years ago, yeah. where like, I need to see Xavier do it in the tournament. Like Villanova, I know they, they had that like giant crazy run of choking before they finally won the title, but like they proved it now. So I think Villanova gets the benefit of the doubt, even if they've played pretty poorly recently. Um, I still trust Villanova more than a lot of teams when it comes to March. They did um, choke last year too. They did show last year, too. But they have a lot of those guys, and, and I think Jay Wright's a good coach, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Xavier, like, I mean, when was the last, like, I, some, I could be completely last wrong. Year. And last year was what? Last year was a deep run, but last year they were, they did they made a deep run. They, as, oh, as yeah, a, they, they made the, a deep run as, as a poor seed. I knew that was going to happen. They made a deep <laughs> run as, like, they were, like, <laughs> they were in, a, what, 11 seed last year? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, last year they made a nice run when no one expected it. This year, 
uh, we and I feel like we do see this like a lot where a team makes a deep run, they come in with high expectations the following year. I'm a man up is like, what's Xavier going to be like a two or a three seed? Um, I've uh, looked at it might be a one. They could seek a one, yeah. Um, depending on what they do in in the Darden, the home of the Big Ten um, next week. But um, yeah, I, I still I, I will need to see it from them. Not that they don't have uh, a really nice team, but either way. Top to bottom, I mean, the ACC, if you just lop off Pitt, if you can, <laughs> because Pitt is so bad, like, so very bad. And I'm not apologizing for it because it's hilarious. And, like, if you ask me if I'd rather have the ACC as it is currently constructed or, like, a decent, even if not great, Pitt team that, like, shows, like, oh, wow, there's no terrible team, no, give me give me terrible Pitt. It's really funny. Yeah, I, uh, I'll, as much as it's quote-unquote bad for the ACC, I'll always take terrible Pitt or terrible BC. Um, a, because we face both of those teams twice in every season. Um, and B, because it's just funny to laugh at those two schools. Pitt in particular, um, just because they've always kind of had our number. I know BC has is, is, is dealt their own kind of miserable cards toward us um, in recent seasons. Mostly talking about uh, when they ruined our perfect season uh, this year. Some other random wins that they've been able to kind of scrounge out here and there. Uh, but uh, Pitt, on the other hand, has been, um, from the entire Jamie Dixon tenure, just been uh, beyond aggravating the play. Um, the Pete became a, uh, a kind of house of horrors for SU until Tyler Ennis kind of claimed some of that back. And now, you know, anyone can just kind of walk into the Pete and the 3,000 fans that are left in that place um, and, 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 you know, beat the snot out of the Panthers. So, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I, I, I'll, t- I'll take them or BC at the bottom, but Penn in particular is, uh, is, is, is overjoying for me. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think BC has gotten theirs, but A, we didn't play BC regularly for that, you know, decade. Um, so there just isn't that, like, a recent animosity. And Pitt just, we could not beat Pitt for, to save our lives for, for so long. Um, so for them to bottom out specifically, I would probably take Pitt. I know, like... If Georgetown or UConn was in our conference, it might be different. But in terms of a team that we definitely play every year, I think I would probably take Pitt in terms of the team that I most want this to happen to. Because they were such a thorn in our side. Even when Pitt was completely mediocre and Syracuse was good some years, which wasn't too often because Pitt was very good for a long time, like, we just could not do it. It was it was like a mental block until Tyler Ennis hit that shot. Um, so, uh, so I, yeah, I completely agree on that. Um, and... I'm almost shocked that they haven't fired Stallings yet, like that they just didn't do it mid-year to appease their fan base, because um, the other thing I will say about this, uh, what what Pitt has revealed to us right now, and I know Syracuse hasn't been this bad ever, really, but Syracuse has been pretty mediocre, aside from a Final Four run for like four years now, Um, and Syracuse fans have never come close to like doing this. And I know we have like our own, you know, we have some complaints about the Syracuse fan base at large, about, you know, some online stuff, Syracuse fans show up for, for basketball no matter what. Um, maybe not the same level. Maybe they're not going to put 30,000 in the arena. But even a bad by Syracuse standards team is going to get 20,000 almost every night for a conference game and is going to get 25 every time they play on the weekend uh, or in like a primetime spot. Um, Pitt, just no one's going like at all. And I know they're 8 and 23 or whatever, but like it fell off real quick. It didn't take long for Pitt fans to decide this wasn't worth it for them. Syracuse fans, I, I, have, I have faith that it would take a, a while for Syracuse fans to get to the, the depths that Pitt fans have fallen to uh, with this team. You have, you, I, have, I, you have much more faith in the Orange fans than I do. 
I don't know. The, the last couple of years, Syracuse have been more, more or less unwatchable, except for, I guess last year's team wasn't totally unwatchable. They just couldn't play defense. But this year's team has been ugly, and they, I guess they've been in it enough where they're still hold on, held on to tournament hopes, but it hasn't been a great home schedule. Um, they were, you know, basically, like, uh, uh, also ran for the ACC all year, and we're still packing in, like, pretty pretty decent attendance numbers, all things considered. Um, I think it would take... I think it would take more than just one horrendous year for Syracuse fans to have the fall off to the level that Pitt fans have. See, yeah, I mean, to the level, but I also think it's it's hard to scale because we have such a larger venue that anytime you compare a fan base that checks out, like there's always going to be your season ticket holders that are going to show up. There's going to be the older folks that are going to show up no matter what. Um I think because of the size of the venue, like, yeah, you're going to end up with, you know, your your students that are going to show up en masse as well. I think you saw during that Hopkins run, um, SU fans were kind of quick to check out. It doesn't mean that they, you know, were completely gone, but it definitely showed how quickly they were willing to check out, even for a team that, you know, really did show up night in and night out during that stretch, even if they, they were losing, uh SU fans did seem like they were kind of quick to, to call it call it a day on, on, on a bunch of those. And that's not to hammer the fan base in particular. It's just to more point out that I do think that, that if, if we were... Like, keep in mind, too, Dan, I mean, 8-23, and 23, way different than, like, for SU fans, I understand that, like, this is a quote-unquote mediocre team. For, like, a good portion of the ACC, this is a pretty solid season. Um, and then, you know, kind of hanging around the bubble and we'll see what happens next. Even the teams that are ahead of us right now, like what we have right now would be, would be in the top, you know, 10% of seasons they've had, um, you know, save a couple here and there. Um, I'll still, I'll still take this again. Like I, I wrote in that article earlier today, like Syracuse is exactly what we thought they were. Like they're an injury riddle team that, that is bad on offense has very little depth um, and played like it this year. And I, I think that, you know, SU fans, for the most part, have kind of viewed that accordingly. But I, I do feel like if, you know, a couple more seasons of, of just this, we'd be here or lower on the attendance rate. If, if SU had a season under Jim Beheim, uh like Pitt, or under Jim Beheim's successor, like Pitt just had, I don't really think we'd see much of SU fans um, online um, in the stands. I know we see, um, you know, the blog kind of turns into a ghost town pretty quickly. Um, the, the second the team kind of hits a, a cold streak, and you know, you can you can look pretty quickly at some other sports besides basketball. Um, it doesn't take long for for fans to stop showing up for football and. As far as women's basketball, I mean, fans never show up, no matter how good they are, as we've discussed on here many a time, including last week. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, I think if you had prolonged a prolonged period that was right. like that, or even sub where we are now, I think you would see some erosion, especially if that comes post Bayheim. I think Bayheim, for whatever reason, um, I think people are comforted by him being on the sideline, and there's also the the question marks about how much longer you will be able to see a Jim Beheim coach team, which will draw some, like, I wouldn't even say it's, it's, uh, like, that's why people say they're going to games. It's but intrigue. I do th- it's intrigue, and I think it's just in the back of people's minds. Uh, I do think that the, 
I mean, it's obvious, but the person, whoever replaces him, uh, is going to have, I think they're going to have to hit the ground running in a big way, or else, you know, if year one after Bayheim results in, like, a season that's like this season, people are going to be like, uh-oh, we're done, uh, Bayheim's Bayheim's out, whereas having him on the sideline even through something like this, there's still that, like, you know, we have the Hall of Fame coach who has guided us through worse um, we're going to come out the other end okay in all likelihood, uh, which I think does help, you know, bring bring fans back to the arena. So we'll see. Uh, hopefully it doesn't ever get to that. And, and honestly, Pitt is so bad, I don't think we'll ever get to literally that because I can't even imagine watching a basketball team that that's that hapless. Yeah, it would take a pretty amazing effort for, for Syracuse to get that low. And, and I mean, to be honest, it took an amazing effort for Pitt to get uh, to those depths as well. I mean, it was kind of a perfect storm of, you know, Dixon had that one rough season, bounced back, and then left. They hired a coach they never should have hired um, in Kevin Stallings, and then a bunch of players transferred. They weren't really able to replenish the talent at all. There were injuries on top of that. Like but By a bunch, you mean like almost an entire roster. Yeah, like almost an entire <laughs> roster. But, but yeah, it, it's been a pretty phenomenal... And, and, and I mean that in like the 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 least like hilarious way, um, like confluence of events that have kind of created this for them. Um, and I don't think it necessarily happens again to anyone. But I mean, I also want to caveat like Pitt being a quote unquote power, um, as we've mentioned around here before. And I think like that's what annoyed me the most about Pitt. Like I was fine if UConn was going to go on a run. And, and and knock us around a bunch or Georgetown, like but even Villanova, but like Pitt kind of the way they the way they built something that like was very nouveau riche, still had zero um success in the postseason, like and yet there was just this this constant um you know, kind of thing for us where we just couldn't get past that hump, that's what kills me. Um and and so like that's why I think I had less respect for it. I know a lot of Syracuse fans had less respect for it because it, it didn't come with the postseason success to really kind of you know seal the deal that that Pitt was a power. Um, so I I think they'll be back, but I just don't know to what extent. Um, who knows if Pitt ever get really gets to um, you know the the top three or four in this conference ever again, but. I mean, I, I could say that about about half the teams in this league. I think um, at this point, I think Georgia Tech and maybe Wake and BC are the only three teams that I can say probably never again hit the top four. But yeah, maybe maybe Pitt ends up in that that group eventually. I mean, they could still have great seasons. They could still finish, you know, twelve and six, or eventually, well, I guess, in a year or two from now, uh, what's going to be the equivalent of twelve and six in the in the twenty game ACC? Um, 14 and no, it would be 14. Yeah, 13 and 13 7. 13 and 7. Yeah, let's go with 13 and 7. That's a whole nother conversation. That's pretty dumb that we're going 20 games, but whatever. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know where Pitt Ceiling is going to be. It really depends on who they hire next. If they end up with Sean Miller, we're not going to get into that topic today. Um, yeah, maybe it's, it's back in that top four. But otherwise, I, yeah, I really don't know where Pitt can end up in this conference anymore. Yeah, like you said, it, it was such an interesting confluence of events that I don't think is particularly replicable to get Pitt where they are now. Um, I think if you make like one great coaching hire, they could get back to like a solid place, but they don't have the footing of like, um, like say whoever takes over for for Coach K, 
um, which is not obvious at all. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, maybe Jeff Cable, but, like, Jeff Cable already had his shot at Oklahoma and flamed out. Um, but, like, say say someone takes over for Coach K and just utterly fails, not to the level that, that Stallings is a pitch, because I don't know if that's possible. But, like, at an NC but, State level. Like, most, yeah, most years to, like, NC State level. Yeah, if they fall to, like, where they're finishing the bottom half of the ACC a couple of years, I think whoever takes over for that guy will still be able to sell Duke as Duke. Pitt just, like, they had some good teams, like, that they want the, the Daywan Blair teams the um, in, like, the late 2000s that were, like, one seeds in the tournament and lost in the second round. Um, those teams, you could still sell something on those because people remember them, and even if they didn't have the tournament success, you're like, oh, they were really good during the regular season. Since, like, in the end of the Nixon run, like, they weren't particularly good in the regular season, and they didn't have any postseason success to fall back on, so... Like, there just wasn't a lot there, and they don't have a, a giant basketball history to speak of. Um, they had the Big East, which helped, and they have the ACC now. But there just isn't a lot that, like, separates them. Like, the Pete w- helped, but if the Pete, you know, if the Pete's going to be uh, a quarter full, that's not going to be a huge advantage. Um, so it's just, it, it's. It, I think if they make a, a good coaching hire, they can definitely get back to, like, a place of respectability. I just don't know that they profile as... Uh, an elite top four ACC squad. And, and you can say the same thing about Syracuse, but I think Syracuse is a little bit more with a national championship and a bunch of final four runs and a legendary coach and whatnot. Um, that even after and a fan base that has nothing else going on. That too. Yeah. Um, not like Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh goes, eh, like the, the, the Pittsburgh the, just pro the, sports and is like apparently a pretty cool city at this point. And right. Like there's other things to do there. They prefer, you know, they prefer the football program probably over the basketball uh, program being good. Maybe. They don't really support that either, which is like <laughs> people, people complain about Syracuse fan attendance and, and, you know, rightfully so I've kind of like retired from caring all that much until the team gets good. Like I'll get really annoyed when the team is good and no one's showing up. But for now, I, I get it at this point. Pitt's been good. Pitt's been bad. Pitt's been mediocre. No one, Pitt's football attendance just is sad and it's, it's, you know, made worse by the fact they play at Heinz Field. That, that place has never been more than helpful. At least the Dome, you can, like, gear it up for, like, a game a year. Fair enough. Um, okay, right before halftime, as we've done numerous times here before, um, Dan, without going through the entire bracket, uh, pick your final four right now. Oh, man. Um, oh, that's tough. I'm going to go Villanova. I just feel good about them. I think they're going to bounce back from this, like, iffy stretch that they've had lately. Um... I want to pick Virginia, but I'm being stared away by past results, even though I do think this Virginia... I think college basketball is is not, like, super top-heavy this year, and I think Virginia... It might This might be the best position for them. Um, but I, I'm being slightly stared away from it. Um, I kind of think Michigan State will make a run, because just at this point, like, with with all the storylines in this, it just feels like a thing's going to happen. Because why why not have uh, have all the controversy that comes with that? Let's see who else do I like. All right, I'm gonna go with those three, and I feel like I, I want to choose someone a little more interesting. Um, and I'm going through, and I don't want to pick Duke, even though I could definitely see that happening. <laughs> um, cut out some of this dead air that we have here. How about uh, how about the Zags? I think the Zags like, just have not been talked about at all, and Ooh. they're just doing Zag things. 
well, since I hate the Zags, um, I am going to pick, I'm picking Duke, I'm picking West Virginia, I'm picking North Carolina, and, I mean, and everyone is very surprised by you pick North Carolina at this point, and I'm picking Xavier. Yeah, I thought about Duke, I thought about Carolina, Xavier we talked about a little bit before, um, I could definitely see both Duke and Carolina. I think both are playing some of their best basketball of the year right now, which helps. Um, I think Carolina obviously was just there and has you know a couple of, of guys who were big role, uh, big players on that team back. Uh, Duke is just super talented and has learned to play defense during the year and with their move to zone, which is fun to hear everyone uh, talking about. Um, yeah, I, I could buy all those. I think I think this is going to be a fun tournament because I could see. I think I think the the top tier of teams that could conceivably win is going to be a lot higher than it normally is. Oh yeah, it's or about a lot larger, twenty. Rather. It's about twenty deep. I yeah, think. I also don't think there's going to be a huge difference between like two seeds and four seeds. Like mm-hmm. I think there's just this big, like, ugly top class of schools beyond like even even like I can't even tell you a couple schools that are definitively better than, than like the other top 15. Like, Michigan State, I think, has a lot of talent. Um, obviously, Nova and, and Duke have a lot of talent. Kentucky, no one, I, I don't think anyone's going to be surprised if Kentucky enters as, like, a five or a six seed and ends up making a run. So, like, it's just, it's it's all over the place, which I think makes for a fun tournament a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, said, I, I think I think 20 team, I think there's probably a 20 team, like, pile that could make it in. There's obviously, like, your dark horses out, outside of that group, too. Like, I don't know what to think about Cincinnati. I don't know what to think about Tennessee, even Purdue. Uh, a team like Nevada, um, Clemson, Ohio State really hasn't played as well as they did the earlier part of the season. Like, yeah, who knows with a lot of these guys. Arizona, who knows what they're going to be able to do or not. I kind of enjoy, like, you know, some teams like Houston coming out of nowhere. But, yeah, I, I, I went with, you know, two ACC teams, a Big East team, and a Big 12 team. But, um I, I could see a hell of a lot more chaos than that happening. Yeah, I'm, there is no chance that when I fill out my bracket, I'm going to feel good about it. Like, not not even a little bit. It's just, I felt good about it last year, and it was the worst bracket I've filled out in 20 years. It was, <laughs> the, it was the only time since I was, like, 10 years old, no joke, that I didn't get a single Final Four team right. That happened to me a couple of years ago. Um, I haven't had a great bracket in a while. Um but I think mine was last year was okay. Two years ago was just an utter disaster. So if, if they ever tell you that, you know, when you start to work in sports full time, uh, you learn more about who's going to win the NCAA tournament. They are they are very wrong. <laughs> um, I haven't had a particularly great one in the last four years. I've had some like passable ones, but overall, like it's been a crapshoot for a while now, and and I think this year is going to be very much that. I'll buy it, especially if Syracuse manages to get in. Then Crapshoot crap favors us. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm here for it. If, if, <laughs> if Syracuse gets in um, and just avoids playing ACC teams for a while, like, I could see us doing another stupid, probably not Final Four run. I just don't think this team has it in, in them. But, I mean, I could see us making, like, a stupid Sweet 16 run that we have no business to having. Um, that being said, like, let's, let's step there first. If, if, if we make the tournament at all, I'll be thrilled. So, uh yeah, that'd be nice. I don't want to. I don't want to deal with like the, the the Syracuse list march. I like to have a little bit of stress before I settle into the rest of the tournament. Agreed. Um, all right, 
Dan, before we continue to football, uh, halftime. What have you been drinking? Because I don't have a large list again this time. You're going to beat me. I did very little drinking this weekend um, after two or three pretty heavy weeks. Uh, literally the only thing I checked into, and I, I don't think I forgot anything, um, was I had a brown bird by Captain Lawrence, which was just a you know pretty regular uh, brown ale solid because it's Captain Lawrence. But that was like the only thing that was interesting that I checked into. So, um, yeah, it... it not a big drinking we get for me. A bunch the the previous two or three, so um, definitely scaled back a bit. Fair enough. Um, for me, like I said, I was up in the mountains, um, so I had some Beechwood Citraholic because I had some cans that I brought up with me. Um, I had a couple Lagunitas IPAs. Uh, I had some Golden Road three twenty nine Lager, and that was really it. I. Uh, I used the beer to power me to the best bowling round I've ever had. It wasn't that good. It was a 167. I feel like that's that, that that's like moderately okay, but uh, I, I credit the beer for that. Cool. Yeah, that's uh, that is the shortest. I mean, we went a little over in the first half from what we usually do. So I guess I guess the short half time is uh, makes up for it. Yeah, that's a good balance. Um, all right, now we move to football. As I think last week was one of the only times Dan and I have ever completely avoided football. Um, some of the others probably being around the Miracle Final Four run uh, a couple years ago. But anyway, uh, Dan, we start with the offense. Um, Rex Culpepper is on the depth chart, but not at the quarterback position. <laughs> He ends up at uh, at the second string holder spot. Um, Tommy DeVito is your number two quarterback. Are you surprised it happened this quickly? Were you expecting it to kind of wait until uh, until spring practice was over? Um, vaguely, um, I think we all expected Tommy DeVito to be the the de facto number two quarterback. Like if there was an injury to Dungey, who who could ever imagine that happening? Mm. Um, Oh my God. Indiana's up 17 to three on Rutgers. Um, I just looked up to the store for the first time. Um, I don't know why I said, Oh my God, that's not like surprising. Um, (laughs) Rutgers down 14 early. Hey, they beat Minnesota who was in the top like 10 earlier this year, even though they've had like a whole litany of issues. Um, Yeah. Uh, So yeah, no, I'm, I'm not terribly surprised. I thought, that perhaps it would be like the thing where DeVito has to like go earn it in the spring or earn it in the summer. But I, I don't think anyone expected DeVito to not be the number two guy in terms of, uh, you know, who would come off the bench in, in the event that Dungey got hurt, uh, whether or not that was going to be cemented now or, you know, in August. So maybe a slight, slight surprise, but I think it was all semantics if, if he wasn't number two now. So... Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, I uh, I thought it was semantics, but I did feel like Culpepper was going to get a shot. I guess Dino really isn't sold. Um, oh, well. Um, the Strickland and Neil or designation doesn't really concern me much. I Again, I, I think if Neil can figure out the, you know, blocking and, and call out some defenses, I think you end up seeing Strickland uh, switch to receiver, and I definitely think that now. Um, after looking at the receiver position here. It's not that I was sold on anybody, but I just didn't think we'd see this much upheaval at the receiver position um, before spring practice even started. Um, Your starters right now, 
Uh, Devin Butler and Jamal Custis on the outside, not shocking. But on the inside, uh, Nikeem Johnson, which, sure, uh, not surprised there. And Antoine Cordy, of all people, will at least start spring as a starting wide receiver. Uh, Dan, did you expect anything like this, um, especially with Cordy um, kind of coming back and being healthy um, and us needing some help in the uh, in the secondary? Uh, I'm going to say no. I was not expecting <laughs> one of our best secondary players to abruptly move to receiver. Um, and it's, it's an interesting move. Um, we saw so basically there were there were two messages that we that we saw in terms of like trying to explain this move. The first was from uh, our friend of, from the blog Julian Wiggum, who said that Cordy's one of the best athletes on the team. Uh, that you know in that case tried to end the ball. He liked the move. It's obviously not conventional at all, but you know that being the case, and he would know better than us because he's spent a lot more time around these guys. Um, it's certainly interesting. Uh, and then Dino Papers basically saying. Uh, Antoine's five foot eight, and we don't want to get him hurt, <laughs> um, which maybe wasn't uh, as uh, exciting. Uh, that being said, it might like, be the more accurate. They, <laughs> it might be more accurate. Um, that being said, I don't think that would be the reason why you make this move. Um, in you know, in totality, there's definitely an error, a, a, a you know, kernel of truth there based on the fact that it happened at all and that he said it, but. I think if they thought that he was not going to be a factor at wide receiver, they wouldn't have moved him there. They might have just like kept him at safety and tried to limit his snaps. And they definitely wouldn't have slid him in ahead of Sean Riley uh, as the starter in the uh, inside receiver position. So it's definitely interesting. I, I think I have no reason to think that he won't have a big role uh, given this move because Sean Riley, like while he had some very frustrating moments last year, um, is definitely one of the more established eyes we have coming back at this position as a whole, uh, along with Butler and, and Custis, who came on a little bit at the end. Um, I'd say Riley's right in that top three in terms of guys who are, you know, we, we, we know a decent amount about. So the fact that they already have Cordy in over him, and there's no or unless I'm not reading it correctly. Um, no, there's no or. Um, it's, it's definitely very interesting. I'm intrigued uh, because, like, again, this can't all be about injury concerns because Eric Dungey plays a lot. So um, I, I'm very, I think this is definitely like the, the headline from this depth chart release. And uh, I want to see what he can do on offense because he's there for a reason. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm very surprised by it. I don't necessarily know if it sticks. Um, Cause like you said, as much as the injury stuff sounds great, um, you know, didn't bother anybody last year when, he was out there on the defensive side um, to start the year. Um, obviously, Dungy goes out there plenty despite his injury risk. Um, I'm for Cordy. It's going to be about you know like everybody else who either switches positions or comes in for the first time. Is you know can you play um, at that speed um, at a high level? We know we can catch the ball a bit, but. Can you play at that speed? Can you play at the tempo? Can you do that for game after game? And, you know, on top of that, like, it's not as if he's not going to get hit at the wide receiver position. Um, I I think if you're going to slot him in somewhere in front of Sean Riley's probably it. Like, I don't know if Sean Riley's been trying to gain weight. I've expressed some concern about the 151 pounds he currently weighs at. 
Um, even if I have eight, that's still like problematic for, you know, long-term durability in this offense, uh, getting hit by, you know, players in the ACC in general. Um, and so Cordy's going to outweigh him by about 30 pounds. Like that's got to be at least a little bit of cause for concern. Um, and that's why you see Nike and Johnson, you know, be, be the other starter. I think, you know, Sean Riley can still be super effective, um, even if he doesn't end up starting um, at the return spots. I think he can be super effective, um, you know, at, as a backup. I, I think we saw him last year um, able to, to make some, some moves in the right direction. Um, I know I pointed this out in the wide receiver preview this week. I really did like what he did. Um, in the West, and sorry, not Western Michigan, Central Michigan game. Um, that was the one where he had, I think it ended up being like 127 yards total between rushing the ball and receiving. And then he really didn't do much else the rest of the season, which is troubling. But yeah, I, I think we could see something from him this year, even in a reserve role. But Cordy, it's all going to be about what he can do in this offense, how much he can pick up, and uh, you know, spring is a great time to do that. I think you see that here. Uh, we'll talk about some other players that have been kind of shifted around, um, but I think Baber's going to give him every opportunity to prove himself, and then we'll see what happens. Um, I don't mind it, and uh, I don't mind all, all the shifting around. Really, you know, I think we could see even more players. Um, I am surprised, though. I don't know about you, Dan, to see Nakeem Johnson um, also kind of tossed in as a backup to Devin Butler you would think you know a guy like uh guy like is it Cameron Jordan Jordan Cameron I feel like this is another like NFL situation where I can't really remember which one's which I think it's Cameron Jordan it's Cameron Jordan (laughs) perfect he he's he's one question um I just pulled up the FCU football roster and interestingly Cordy has now been switched to wide receiver um, after starting the year not at that position in the official roster. Uh, that was quick. Yeah, that was quick. They usually wait a little while on that. Um, but yeah, Cameron Jordan, Russell Thompson Bishop is right now listed as a backup. I see him kind of working his way in, obviously. Um, and then Sherrod Johnson, like he played, he didn't play, but he traveled with the team all year last year. Um, I could see him working his way in to some sort of I mean there's a lot of people that don't think Cus is going to stay going to prevent himself from being injured I don't really know but um, I, I could see potentially this being the group even if they get resorted and reshuffled around um, like I said I also could see um, Dante Strickland kind of jumping in here and if he jumps in let's say he gets pushed to an inside receiver spot, maybe Russell Thompson Bishop ends up being a backup for Devin Butler or ends up taking over his job at some point. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot less settled here than I thought there was originally, and that's both good and bad, I guess. Uh, Devin Butler is is our leading returning receiver with 33 catches and 327 yards. I remember which maybe is two of them. Yeah, I remember him showing up. I remember a, a bunch of drops. Um, Fuckloads of drops. A lot of drops. Um, but, like, like, that's not nothing, but... This position is like among the more unsettled, as you you said, uh, that we have on the entire roster. Um, I think it's not the worst. We've talked about it before. It's not the worst time to have it because we have a, an experienced quarterback and we have a lot of youth. So whatever happens here, um, we'll have a ton of experience for uh, whomever takes over in twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen. Devito, Culpepper, 
DeVito um, at quarterback. But for now, uh, it's going to be up to Dungy to really lead these guys along because we've, we've really been sitting on this like Ishmael Phillips um, security blanket for a while now, uh, even in the in, you know the rougher years for the receiving core uh, and at Ottawa a couple years ago. Um, I also wonder if it means that Ravian Pierce is going to break out because like we need someone to catch passes. And while I think some of these guys have talent, like Pierce is, I, I'd say he's probably the most proven commodity, even though he had, you know, some up and ups and downs. He has the most returning touchdowns with four. Um, and he's right behind Butler in terms of catches, just four behind him. Um, I, think so Pierce, I, th- I think the reason why Pierce, you know, was kind of up and down last year was only because he had some offensive line issues early in the season. I, I think, you know, once kind of Dungy went down, you need an extra blocker in there. Like, I think the extra blocker in the run game and in the pass game is really why Pierce couldn't be used um, to the, excuse me, extent that he really needed to be. Um, I, I, I know I've said it before. I know Julian Wiggum said it as well. Like, Pierce is going to be is going to be kind of the X factor here, and I could see him easily leading the team in, in catches just because while he is bigger, he's also quick. Um He's got a lot of ability to catch the ball both out in the open field and, you know, right at the line of scrimmage. I could see him really making some things happen this year and, you know, catching 65 to 75 passes, no problem. And that might really be where SU's receivers kind of top out this year. Um, You could end up seeing more players involved. So instead of seeing the high totals that we've seen in the past, um, we end up seeing, you know, three or four guys with, you know, 60 to 75 catches instead of the, uh, the 90 to 100 that we've seen in the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that any of us saw the Edatawa season coming, um, but it became pretty clear pretty quick that he was, like, a really, really good receiver who just didn't have the correct opportunities at Maryland with all their quarterback issues. Ishmael, I I don't know that we would have projected him to have the season he had, but we all knew he was really, really good. And Pierce, like, I think it's interesting, I'm looking at his game log here, um, his two best games were the Pitt and Clemson wins. Like, he had nine catches for 99 yards against Pitt, and then he had... Uh, there's two best games in terms of uh, catch totals and yards. Uh, four for 66 against Clemson. He had two touchdowns out of his four against Wake in the crazy shootout. But um, overall, like it's not, it doesn't totally surprise me that his two most effective uh, games in terms of yards and catches were to were Resi's two uh, biggest and more most recent wins. So um, obviously, things like you said fell apart a bit as the offensive line started to struggle more and Dungy got hurt. So hopefully he and Dungy kind of pick up where they left off before the uh, the quarterback injury, and he can continue to, to grow, because I, I think Butler, and, and even in perhaps more, he uh, will be the two focal points, but I, I agree. I don't, I don't think we're going to have another, um, you know, 1,000-yard, you know, a bunch of touchdown guy. I mean, we might have a 1,000-yard receiver, but I don't think we're going to have another just singularly dominant receiver like we've had the first two years under Babers. I think it's going to be more uh, piecemeal, and I think that it could just be a lot of experimentation because there is so much unknown at this position overall. Yeah, I mean, unless, like, some late grad transfer shows up and, you know, takes the, uh, you know, Memorial, Ambedatawa Memorial 90-plus catch season, uh, yeah, I, I, I could see, you know, a, a much more balanced, and to be honest, like, I think this really needs to be where things go from here is you need to see a much more balanced attack. Um, I, I think where, you know, especially when you see, you know, Etao struggle to make a roster, Ishmael not even on the kind of, you know, NFL draft 
radar right now. And not that I say he shouldn't be, but um, I, I think people are starting to see through a little bit that there's you're seeing Dungy focus on two, maybe three receivers uh, for the most part each season, and that's leading to some pretty gaudy numbers. Um, I would like to see us be a little more balanced, and you know that's when that four wide and, and a really good tight end. Um, you know, scheme really start to shine through because then you can you can send them all all deep, and you have no idea who the hell he's throwing to. Versus now, at least in the last couple of years, you knew exactly who Dungy was throwing to, um, and especially last year, you knew exactly who Dungy and Mahoney and Culpepper were throwing to. It was Irv, it was uh, it was Ishmael, and that was really it. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, the Bowling Green stats from 2015, and like they were they had a lot of weapons, but you had. A 1,500-yard guy in Roger Lewis, who's turned into a nice NFL player. You had uh, a 1,000-yard uh, and 10-touchdown guy in Derek Dieter, who ended up transferring to Alabama for his final year. And then you had Ryan Burbank on the inside, who had 600 yards and four touchdowns. So you had, like, and then you had a couple other guys with three touchdowns each, Derek Lee and Tia Redding. So there were just a lot of options for Matt Johnson that year. It wasn't just, like, the one key guy or, or the two key guys that he had with Phillips and, and Ishmael. Um, it was it was a lot more spread around, and while like Roger Lewis's stats are like are pretty eye popping for a college receiver, um, the fact that he didn't like have uh, even half of of Johnson's total yards, not even all that close, because Johnson almost threw for five thousand yards, like that's definitely ideal, and you see it in the running game too. I've, obviously, we we've talked about it before, but like that that final year, Bowling Green, they had a, a almost thirteen hundred yard rusher, and then they had another eight hundred twenty six yard rusher, so. Um, and we grabbed one of those for the coaching staff this year, Travis Green. Oh, you're right. I did for not. I didn't even make that connection. Um, but yeah, overall, like like this this is an offense that at, at full capacity is spreading things around and uh, really attacking from all levels of the offense. And it's not just going to be keyed in on one or two guys, which I think has been almost more of a necessity than anything else this year. Uh, or the last couple of years, but uh, hopefully we continue to evolve, and, and maybe this is an opportunity where you're, there isn't like the obvious data key in on. Uh, not that I think we're worst for having Edatawo and and Ishmael the last couple of years. No, but, absolutely not. Um, I think ideally you see a more of a more of a balanced breakdown, like you said. Agreed, agreed. Um, I think we can move past the offensive line just because the only real change here is uh, Mike Clark kind of slotting in for Evan Adams, who's injured. Um, Adams will be back, so Clark will shift down one um on defense though a uh, bunch of injuries uh josh black kendall coleman uh brandon Berry, still not back um that's problematic uh but on the bright side it does give a lot of guys who we uh didn't see as much burn from um on the defensive line uh get some reps also see chris elmore i don't know if the fullback uh experiment's over unless you think it's over dan but uh i think chris elmore is going to end up staying at nose tackle or something similar yeah and that makes the most sense i think i wouldn't mind having him as a situational short yardage back if like you know we're on the goal line and we think that's the best option but um i think he's more valuable as a defensive lineman for sure yeah and i mean that's what most teams were recruiting him as i think body type he's definitely more of a nose tackle uh but that said i think mckinley williams especially now that uh that Kate Samuels is gone. I think you see McKinley Williams, um, you know, really kind of dug in there at nose tackle. Chris Slayton's one of the best defenders on this team, if not the best. Um, so he'll be a uh, defensive tackle. Um, defensive end, though, like, I want to see a little bit from Justin Ellis. I think we will see a little bit from him. Um, and I really like what we saw from Alton Robinson last year. 
I think having a full off season to really get prepared instead of showing up like a week before the season started, um, I, I think we're going to end up seeing a much better Alton Robinson as a result. And then you're going to see guys like Zach Morton probably get a little bit of burn in there. But hopefully less um, if, you know, again, the aforementioned Barry and Coleman, who are definitely locked in at defensive end. Uh, Josh Black, I mean, I'm assuming he ends up shifting into defensive tackle, but who knows? He could end up going right back to uh, defensive end uh, for all we know. I think Black and uh, Ruff are both kind of questions, although Ruff is now. I mean, Ruff showed up at, what, 240 originally? And That's what I was about to say. Uh, he's, he's listed, he was like... Somewhere between 240 and 250, he was a big linebacker when we got him. And now he's up to, like, 293, according to his depth chart. So that's a lot of, like, we, we have those questions, whether whether he'd be able to put on the, the weight to be an interior defensive lineman because it was it was really interesting when he shifted all the way to the inside from linebacker. But uh, apparently he did it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't – I think at the time we said, you know, I don't think they would do this unless they thought he could carry it and – he had the body type for it, but uh, apparently he got up to two ninety something. So um, that that should be, you know, that's that's where you you see most defensive tackles at this point between two ninety and like three ten. So we'll see we'll see how he how he goes there because that, that was one of the more interesting things from the last couple of years was the news that he would end up as defensive tackle after we recruited him to be like a middle linebacker. Yeah, I mean, I. I guess we'll see how much speed he kept. I mean, because obviously you're going to lose some speed gaining that much weight. But if he could, if he even keeps probably like 60% of the speed he had coming in, like I could see that being, you know, a real asset inside depending on, again, how much he's used. But I, I do like being able to see some burn from, you know, guys like Kingsley Jonathan who like seemed to be all right in his uh, – in the spots that he played in, I think Robinson ended up getting a lot more burn. Um, I remember the pit game in particular. He was a real force, um, and I'd like to see a lot more from him. Ellis played really well, um, not last year, uh, but when, uh, you know, he was, I think at the Juco ranks, he had really, really good numbers, and he ended up, like, I think gray-shirting last year, depending on how you want to classify it. Um but yeah, I think Ellis could really end up um, being an effective player. Um, but again, a lot of these guys are just going to be uh, younger guys getting burned until we get um, a lot of the assured starters uh, back. Um, but moving on a little bit to linebacker, I know I mentioned this to you earlier. Uh, we were talking on Slack. Uh, very surprised to see, I think most importantly, Andrew Armstrong and uh, Ryan Guthrie switch. Um, I thought Guthrie was more of an outside linebacker, flex defensive end type. Uh, I thought Armstrong was more of a middle linebacker type, especially since he was serving underneath, um, say, Franklin's last couple of years. But um, they switched, and I guess we'll see how that works, unless we don't, right, Dan? <laughs> this whole linebacker group is going to be super new because we've had kind of the, the entrenched eyes there for so long with Franklin and uh, Bennett and uh, the last couple of years, uh, Tom, Jonathan Thomas. And it, we've, we've had such familiar faces. It is a, a bit jarring to see um, not all new names. Like obviously Armstrong played a bit last year and Taylor Whitner was at safety. Um, but it's, it's an entire new look in terms of the starting three. Um, so I think that's going to be a big question mark. We haven't, now the, the one thing I'll say is we haven't had like a bad linebacker group in, I can't even tell you how long, like decades. Yeah. Pretty consistently, the best part of the defense since 
Greg Robinson was here, I'd say. I, I think they were a strength through every Marone and Schaefer season. Um, and obviously, uh, Babers inherited some really good linebackers from Schaefer. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting. Uh, I'm not going to get too worried about it just because, like, my entire Syracuse fandom hasn't really given me a reason to worry about the linebacking play. I guess my freshman year, which was the final year of Brad Robinson, I was worried about everything. So linebackers weren't, like, a specific issue. They were they were still pretty good the then, though. Uh, they were good compared to, like, the defensive backfield, which was just yeah. horrendous. Um, I'd say the defensive line was actually better because Art Jones was a singular monster. Newly retired Art Jones, who was apparently back in the Syracuse area. So if you see Art at Tully's, uh, say hi <laughs> and congratulate him on his uh, his football career. Um, but, yeah, like, linebacker's just been so strong through so many, like, full groups of players that um, it's just hard to, like, sound the alarm on it uh, versus, like, defensive back where, you know, it's been a relative weakness for so long that it, it's, you know, it's almost hard to, like, get super confident about it, even though I think we um, are cautiously optimistic again after seeing some improvement last year there. But uh, overall, like, it's, it's going to be tough to really judge these guys as we haven't seen a lot of them play too much. Obviously, Whitner, Whitner's at a new position. Armstrong, I think, is, is the most experienced guy, and even he was was in the second unit last year. So... It's uh, it's definitely interesting because it seems like we usually transition these things a little bit easier, but we just happen to line it up where we had three seniors last year um, who were all very, very good. Yeah, I mean, I think my biggest surprise, to be honest, is the fact that uh, Darius Fagan's not there. For those who forgot, Fagan was kind of a high three, fringe four uh, type guy. He had offers from LSU, Florida State, Nebraska, whatever. Um, and he's not even on this depth chart right now, which is kind of concerning. Um, we'll see how much we do or don't see of him in the spring. Um, again, really kind of thought we were going to see a ton of him. Um, but I know we're kind of running pretty wide on time at this point. So I'm going to move us on to the secondary, uh, quick. Um, Dan corners really don't surprise me. I'm a little surprised that Alan Stritzinger, um, is in after switching over from running back, um, this early, but, um, Give it a shot. Why not? He just switched over to defensive back. Um, and, I mean, some other guys are probably going to come in um, in the offseason to, to fill those spots. But I'll take him early just to see what he can do. Um, I think the biggest surprise for me, uh, other than Tyrone Perkins being on the two deep for strong safety, is uh, Andre Sisco being, uh, being a free safety this early. Uh, that's great, I guess. I mean, if he's really good enough, we've showed the coaches enough already. Great, if he's if he's more there, so that they can see what he can do early with the first team, that's cool too. Uh, Cisco was a you know kind of high three guy that we got in the 2018 class. Um, again, I, I I mean I wish we had a little more access um, during spring practice, but nonetheless, we should be able to see a little bit of what Cisco can do and some of these other freshmen that have slotted in already. Um, I think Cam Jonas is also on campus. So, um, again, I, I, I'm not too concerned. I think Frederick and, and Bradshaw showed enough to keep their starting jobs. Um, it's going to be interesting to see kind of shuffling around these safeties, uh, what they can do without Antoine Cordy back there. Yeah, the Cisco thing almost informs the Cordy move. Like, I don't think that Cordy would have gotten moved if they didn't think that Cisco was going to be able to slide in here from day one and be the guy at free safety. And it is very rare that you see a freshman come right in and win a starting job before, or not, I mean, I see hasn't technically won it, but 
lay claim to a starting job uh, even before spring practice has started. Um, so it's one of those things where I, I think that it, you have to be relatively impressed by the fact that, that Babers will, feels highly enough about Sisto to slot him in there instead of just putting Clark there for now or leaving Cordy there and waiting to make that move. Um, Bradshaw and Frederick, I think I feel fine about. Uh, overall, um, the guys below them will be interesting to see. I, I, I think with the Stritzinger uh, thing, we, we've been bringing in so many running backs that I, I think it's just a tough position to um, find a place in the depth chart here. I know we're still looking for like an answer there, but obviously Neil and Strickland are going to be factors. Um, I know, you know we think that there might be movement between those guys to maybe receiver, but um, overall, like those two guys are going to get the 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 touches here. Um, we have you know transfers coming in. We have uh, some pretty highly touted running backs in the recruiting class. So I just think that there was there was so much. Um, I don't want to call it depth until it's proven, but there are just so many names and bodies there for the next couple of years that it makes sense that he uh, would get a look at corner now. Um, and I always thought of him as more of like an athlete. Let's see where we fit him in, and then like strictly a running back when we brought him in to begin with. So it doesn't really surprise me that he's he's at corner, and uh, hopefully he finds a spot there because you can always use um, corners in one of those positions where you can use four or five really good players if you can find them. And it's tough because it's such a valuable position. But um, I'm always fine trying new guys out there who are athletic and and seeing if we can get something out of them. Yeah, same. Uh, all right, like I said, to speed us along a little bit. Just the teams is mostly the same. I think we thought from the beginning that Hoffrichter was going to end up being the place kicker, um, and so he is. Uh, Nolan Cooney, who is a uh, kind of flex punter kicker, um, he ends up on kickoffs. I think that'll probably stay the same. I didn't really think... Um, I don't think Hoffrichter has the leg um, kicking-wise to do that, so that's fine if we want to use one of the like you know raft of, uh, of uh, walk-ons. Slash leftover Cooney Brothers. Yeah, leftover Cooney Brothers jokes. We can uh, we can get that. Um, That's really the most valuable thing here. For the blog, it is sure. <laughs> <laughs> Assuming yeah. he can kick, which I I don't know. I assume he can. I think he can. The fact that he came in as a flex punter kicker, um, I, I think he's got enough of a leg. Um, said Hoff stays at punter and he'll do place kicking duties. Uh, Matt Keller is a senior now and uh, he'll do the last of his long snapping underrated player on this team for the last three now four years um interesting if, to see if we decide to use it, another scholarship for 2019 on long snapping or not or if we just plug in aaron Belinsky, um who's kind of i think he's a preferred walk-on um freshman long snapper so yeah who knows maybe we don't need to bother um and we end up using him um beyond him riley like i said keeps both return gigs and then um, Rex Culpepper slots in uh, behind Nolan Cooney at the holding spot. Yeah, uh, nothing crazy to add here. Obviously, a Cooney joke, a uh, you know Hofford is really good joke. Matt Keller, um, he was a scholarship guy from like day one, right? He was. Yeah, we were, yeah. I mean, he was definitely worth a scholarship. Yeah, he was the number remember. one long snapper in the country when we got him. Yeah, that's one of those inefficiencies that you get with being a smaller school, where like programs like Alabama like to use all their scholarships on primarily still position or not just still position, but primarily your, your general uh, 22 position guys. And uh, that's why Alabama always is bad kickers. And uh, they usually, they're almost always dealing with uh, non-scholarship lawn snappers. So 
Um, that's one of those, those things you can exploit when you're a school like Syracuse and you can be a little more selective. Um, but he was definitely worth a scholarship. He's been really, really good for four years. or going into his fourth year. Anyway, that ran long, but it's all good. Uh, Syracuse faces Clemson this weekend. Syracuse women's basketball lost to uh, Virginia Tech today, which is unfortunate. But they are almost definitely in the tournament. There would have to be quite a surprising outcome for them not to be. Um, yeah, we better be Clemson. If we don't, uh, I'm not even going to hold out much hope for the NIT, maybe. <laughs> I think we're in that, but who knows? Um, I, I would very much like to avoid losing four straight to end the season. Yeah, let's not. Let's not do that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that was Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Troy Noons and Absolute Podcast. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk, and go Orange. Go Orange. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.